You could be seated. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. First book of the Bible, sixth chapter. And as we come to Genesis 6 today, it's a good time for us to gather up our findings from our study of Genesis thus far, especially since, as the story of Genesis unfolds in our chapter, there are many hints and nods to what has come before. So if this is your first time with us, you feel like, uh, oh, you're in the middle of something. Let me catch you up. This is good for you as well. Here's what came before in Genesis. God created all things, and he created them good. He created man and woman in his image to bear his image. That means to reflect his goodness and glory and to promote his ways in the world. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were to subdue the earth, pushing back the chaos and establishing order like God does. But in Genesis 3, in that fateful chapter, the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, and Eve took of the fruit that the Lord commanded them not to eat of, and her husband followed suit. We've seen the immediate consequences of that first sin. Right there in Genesis 3, the same chapter, Adam and Eve experience shame and guilt and their actions show it. They hide from God. They, they cover up their nakedness. They blame each other and blame God. This is what we call the fall as Christians. The fall. And it has affected and infected every one of the offspring of Adam and Eve. And really this whole planet. Now, the second half of Genesis 3, there, God steps in. After sin, after shame and guilt, he confronts Adam and Eve. And he explains that there are some curses and some difficulties in light of their sin that are coming. God curses the serpent, the tempter, and promises his eventual defeat. God says that the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman will forever be at war. As for Adam and Eve and their marriage, as well as every marriage to follow, there will be conflict and difficulties, a power struggle that takes place between men and women. Husband and wife will have anxiety emotional pain in raising children, not just in the delivery of children. Work will be hard and frustrating. Death will now be certain for Adam and Eve and all their offspring, and they will be separated from the intimate presence of God. They will be banished from the place of God's special presence, the garden. Now in Genesis 4 and 5, which we looked at last week, we saw the outworkings of those curses and difficulties that were spelled out in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, Cain resents God and then kills his brother. There's a growing civilization in chapter 4, but it is 
building and making and advancing and technology, all with no mention of God. Lamech is referred to in chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, and we learn that he is worse than his father Cain. And then notice this, as you glance down in your Bibles, you might have chapter 6 open. Put chapter 5 before your eyes before we look at chapter 6. And notice the repetition of this phrase in chapter 5, and he died. That is, within this genealogy, this record of length of years and children born to husbands and wives, there is a haunting chorus between each generation. And he died. And he died. And he died. However long they live, they die. Just as God said. And yet, we've been seeing in recent weeks that there are glimmers of hope all through these heavy and dark chapters. Not least, chapter 3, verse 15, that first gospel message that in the seed of the woman, one day, that seed would crush the head of the serpent. We saw last week in chapter 4 that Eve seems to be expectantly looking for a son of hope that was promised in chapter 3, verse 15. She's looking for that first son to be the one, and when he's murdered, it's not him, and so she gives birth to another and hopes that it's him. And it's not him, but there is a godly line, the godly line of Seth. We saw that last week in chapter 4, distinct from an ungodly line of Cain. And the godly line of Seth were people who were calling on the name of the Lord. One of those was Enoch, who walked with God and was taken up, taken away. Death didn't touch him. And then at the very end of chapter 5, there is hope in a son named Noah. So look at the last two verses of chapter 5. It says, when Lamech, and by the way, this is the second Lamech, just to keep you on your toes. It's not the first Lamech who was bad. This is another Lamech who is good. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Oh, he's looking back to Genesis 3, verse 15 as well. That promise of a serpent-crushing seed of the woman was still the anticipation and hope of God's believing people. And Lamech, good Lamech, was hoping that his son would be that one to overturn the curse. Talk about having high hopes for your kids. But it's his expression of faith in what God said he would do. It's him looking to God for God to fulfill what he has already promised. So there are glimmers of hope. And there's a big glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 5. And you would hope that these glimmers turn from just flickers into blazes in the next chapter. 
but instead it's going to get darker before there's any more light. It's not only going to get darker, it's going to get more complicated, if not confusing. But let's read it. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we'll stop there for now, and we'll read on later. I want to break down this chapter as a whole under four Parts or four headings. Here's the first. We could call it humanity's corruption. Humanity's corruption, verses one through five. And there's an example of that corruption that's spelled out in verses one through four. Then there's going to be a summary statement of it in verse five. But this example, verses one through four, is one of the most difficult parts in the Bible. Infamously so. These are verses that are hard to understand, notoriously debated, and then even when we understand them aright, they're also hard to believe. But let's start with the low-hanging fruit of these first four verses, the easy observations. Whatever is going on here and whoever is involved, it is bad. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, that sounds pretty promising, multiply. That's what God said that human beings should do. But then the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. That's the ESV. Literally in the Hebrew, it's when they saw they were good. Hold that thought. That's important. They saw daughters of men were good and they this repeats the language of Eve's disobedience in the garden back in chapter 3. She saw that it was good, and she took. And now sons of God saw daughters of men that they were good, and they took. So whatever is going on here, it's like another fall. It's the fall playing out 2.0. It's bad. That's the low-hanging fruit. It's bad. But who are these sons of God, and what exactly are they doing? Well, there are two primary interpretations of these sons of God. One is that some say 
The sons of God are the descendants from the godly line of Seth that was spelled out in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Genesis. And in favor of this view, that is indeed exactly what came before. That's what was just being talked about, the godly line of Seth through a genealogy in chapter 5. And so this line of interpretation would go like this. The once godly, the once godly line of Seth eventually started marrying whomever they wanted regardless of their faith. And so they married the daughters of men who were attractive. Beauty became the most important feature in a prospective spouse, not faith or godliness. Now, I used to hold that view. It's a completely legitimate interpretation of this difficult text. I I even found that I wrote a, a Desert Springs Church newsletter back in 2004, and I wrote a few paragraphs on this passage and took that position. But I personally have been convinced of this other view. Here it is. That the sons of God here are, well, just like every other reference to the sons of God in the Old Testament, they refer to angelic beings, spiritual beings, angelic beings. And in this case, fallen angelic beings. So let me say again that every other reference to the sons of God in the Old Testament refers to angelic beings. Think of Job 1 and 2, when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord, their angels. And another rationale for this interpretation is that the lineage of Seth, spelled out in chapter 5, throughout that, people are just referred to as fathers and sons and daughters. No one's called a son of God That's new language in chapter 6. So it's likely distinguishing sons of God from the normal everyday fathers and sons that were taking place back in chapter 5. And perhaps also distinguishing the sons of God from the daughters of men. Just plain old girls who just happen to be pretty. Another rationale for it is that Two New Testament passages, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6, seem to imply that these were fallen angels. And it's also the earliest interpretation, the oldest interpretation. So this line of interpretation would say that fallen angelic beings apparently started taking human women, beautiful human women, for themselves, for their Wives, you say, Ryan, angels can't marry. That's also in the Bible. So what about that? Angels don't have bodies. They can't have physical relations with women. Well, maybe it's as simple as simply assuming that these fallen angels inhabited real human men. And that's how marriage and procreation took place. We would later call that demon possession. So that interpretation doesn't go out the window just because it sort of confuses us that angels here are 
said to have taken women and married them. But if we read on, verse 4, we'll find this word that's unfamiliar to us, Nephilim. And that is also given a lot of debate and discussion. And many would assume that the offspring of sons of God and daughters of men is what produced Nephilim, whatever they are. But it actually never says that in the text if you look carefully. It says, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So I'm convinced that's a simple time marker. The Nephilim, it says, were already on the earth in those days and also after this was taking place. So this sons of God and daughters of men debauchery was taking place in the days of the Nephilim. Nephilim is used again in Numbers 13 when the spies go looking in Canaan for their enemies and they say, those dudes are huge and we are like grasshoppers, we're in trouble. They're called Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim before the flood can't be also the same Nephilim in, in Numbers 13. These get wiped out. But, sure, maybe Nephilim, whether Numbers 13 or Genesis 6, were larger than life, larger than normal human beings, not unlike Goliath in 1 Samuel. But likely, their reference in Genesis 6 is, is just saying that sons of God and daughters of men, that stuff took place in the days of the Nephilim. And though we don't know what Nephilim are or what they looked like exactly, apparently Moses' first audience did. And so it can be used like a simple time marker. It'd be like me saying, I was born in the Gerald Ford administration, which I had to look that up and I thought, man, I feel old Ford was president. Kids, Ford used to be president. Now, Ford's presidency had nothing to do with my birth. It's, it's just when I was born. I think we have a time marker in verse 4. And as for what comes of this union between sons of God and the daughters of men, verse 4, they bore children. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. In other words, famous king, kings and warriors came from these relations. And you might say, I don't know, Ryan, about this angelic interpretation. What would be the point of it? What would be the point of it? Well, it'd be showing us that sin and perversion has reached a new low. God created things according to their kind back in Genesis 1 and 2, and this breaks that order on a massive level. Polygamy would do that, but this even more than that. Jude 6 says, these angels did not remain in their proper place. This interpretation of the sons of God in Genesis 6 shows us that the, the serpent and the offspring of the serpent are still at work after that scene in the garden. And again, it's like another fall all over again. They saw it was good and they took. 
And you might say, yeah, okay, but I don't know. It's weird to think that this happened, that these are angels who hooked up with pretty women. Well, we shouldn't be leery of any interpretation simply because it's weird to us. The Bible is weird all over the place. You want weird? I can show you some other weird stuff if you want. In fact, the weird is no small part of the equation in our passage. Weird is exactly the point. Things on earth had gotten so bad that demons had found a way to shack up with pretty women and produce mighty kings and warriors. But regardless of whether you agree with me that these are angels, fallen angels or not, either position I mentioned, the godly line of Seth is the sons of God, and the sons of God are fallen angels, either position produces the same takeaway or application. So if the godly line of Seth had embraced marrying pretty women of the world, regardless of their faith, that's a bad deal. That's a big problem. It was Solomon's downfall. And if demons were inhabiting human men in order to marry and procreate with beautiful women, well, that's even worse. Now we skipped verse 3. What about the 120 years that are mentioned there? God puts a limit, it says, 120 years on life. And this could either mean that God put a general limitation on life, not a universal perfect one, because some people after this live longer than 120 some people live much longer, but it could be that God put a general limitation. We generally don't live longer than 120 years, or it could be that God was referring to him starting uh, a countdown clock of judgment, 120 years, and this thing's going to go. Well, an example of human corruption in verses 1 through 4. And then just notice the summary of it in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. Man was supposed to fill the earth with God's glory, with reflections of his image. And instead, they have filled the earth with violence. The heart is evil and thinks evil and devises evil continually. God saw that. God sees the wickedness of the world and the injustices of this world. He sees, he knows, he cares. He sees better than you do. He knows better than you do. He cares more than you do. He sees hearts, not just actions. That's potentially scary as people who are sinners to know that he sees our hearts better than we do. But this is obviously describing an especially bad time for humanity. Every intention of the thought of the human heart was evil continually. 
This is creation's undoing. What God put together and gave design for is now falling apart at the hands of those who were called to keep it. So secondly, we see, and these will go faster now, God's frustration. God's frustration. And you might wonder, frustration? I've never heard that word put right next to God. Can an omnipotent, all-wise God ever be frustrated? Well, that is a good question. But that's just my one-word summary, a synonym of three words that are used in verse 6 and verse 7 for God. Notice, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved his heart. In the end of verse 7, I am sorry that I have made man. Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks like this, but it is probably the most thorough with its threefold statement of divine frustration. Now, further complicating matters is that there are some other texts that seem to say the opposite. Like Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or that he should change his mind. He has said it. Won't he do it? And of course, the answer is yes. And there are some other texts where in close proximity, it seems to say both. Like 1 Samuel 15, when God says, I regret that I made Saul king. And then the prophet, shortly after, speaks for God and says, I think rightly, God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What's that? Is that double talk? Well, let's add to the equation some theological principles we can draw from the whole of Scripture. One is that God doesn't make mistakes like we do. He doesn't. He is all wise and good and in control. He always sees it coming. He has a plan. It's a plan that he's had from the beginning. This is his plan. He's working it out. We're in it. It's happening. And there is just too much plain readings in the Bible that, that make very clear for us that God is not on plan B, let alone plan C, D, E, F, G, H. How many plans would he need with so many people as messed up as us? So God doesn't make mistakes like we do. Also, God doesn't have emotions like we do. The Bible describes God having emotions, anger, joy, sadness. It's not wrong necessarily to speak of God having emotions, though older theologians used to speak of God not having passions because they, they used the word passions back then more negatively than we do today. It's, it's good to have passion, we think, today. Back then, passion was sort of uncontrolled emotion. And God doesn't have that kind of emotion. He, he's never worked upon by others externally, therefore forcing him to feel a certain way. God doesn't have emotions like we have. 
So how do we put all of this data into the theological meat grinder and get something useful on the other side? It's this, God accommodates to us. God condescends in a good way to us to communicate in human-like terms. You think of how it says that God works his arm for our salvation. But, but God doesn't have an arm. He's a spirit. It speaks of God's hand. It speaks of God's eyes. It speaks of God walking in the Bible. This is God communicating his eternal, infinite ways to us who are not infinite. We're finite. We're concrete. We're physical. We're local. And so God communicates to us in that way. Not to deceive us. It's not merely either to accommodate and to condescend to us in a good way so that we would get it, though that's true. It's also so that we would feel it. Feel it, regret, grief, sorrow are words put upon God's reaction to human sin. The reformer John Calvin said, because it could not otherwise be known how great is God's hatred of sin, the Spirit accommodates himself to our capacity God was so offended by the atrocious wickedness of men as if they had wounded his heart with mortal grief. In order more effectually to pierce our hearts, God clothes himself with our affections. So unless we wish to provoke God, Calvin goes on to say, to put him to grief, let us learn to abhor and flee sin. In other words, the language of regret and grief and sorrow applied to God is not applied to God mistakenly. It is meant to shock us. It is meant to lead the way in our attitude toward sin. This is here in the Bible so that you would hate sin more. Thirdly, we see humanity's destruction. Humanity's destruction. Verse 5 talks about what God saw. Verse 6 talks about what God felt. Verse 7 speaks of what God said. So the Lord said, I will blot, blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. It's also in verse 13 where God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And there's a word play in the Hebrew that's not in our English. Verse 12, the earth was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted it. Verse 13, God will destroy it. Same Hebrew word. The earth was destroyed with sin. And God will destroy it because of sin. Again, this is creation's 
undoing. Do you have a place for this kind of God in your thinking? You might say, I thought God is love. Isn't that a Bible verse? God is love. And he is. But it's a passage like this that makes his love so amazing. We're told in Romans 11 to behold the goodness and severity of God. Beholding the goodness of God is easy. Or at least it's comfortable. At least it doesn't make us uncomfortable. But beholding the severity of God is not something we are usually drawn to or good at. So let me ask us some questions to help us behold the severity of God. And then a little bit later, we'll get to beholding the goodness of God. If you, if you struggle to behold the severity of God in this flood that takes out rebel sinners, I wonder, do you have a God who has the right to bring justice and retribution to human rebels. Because the Bible speaks of a God who not only has the right, but the responsibility to do it. He's the only one who can. Do you think so little of sin? If sin is simply like tripping over a speed bump, you know, and then you, you trip over it and then you go on and Good thing I didn't fall. I wouldn't do that again if I could help it. I'll, I'll be watching for more speed bumps in this parking lot going forward, but I just almost tripped. It's okay. I'm a little embarrassed because I looked a little funny, but only a few people saw me. Well, if sin is like that, then the flood makes no sense, and neither does hell. But if sin is quite different than that, if it is human rebellion if it is rejecting God, if it is playing God, if it is trying to be God, then it is worthy of immediate death, not just eventual death. Don't you think that this world, so bent and broken as it is even today, don't you think this world still today needs a final reckoning? Don't you think that this world still awaits Proper justice? I mean, are you talking, are you thinking that the municipal courts are going to get it right always, all the time, in such a way that the scales, the balance of justice is always perfectly met? That's not going to happen in the here and now. And Christians are looking for a day when it will happen. When Jesus comes back. And so, are you really surprised that God, once upon a time back then, brought an immediate universal judgment to sin, just like he will once again do someday? And, and don't you have a sense of justice, a longing for justice, an innate sense of justice? How is it that we don't have to teach our little kids this phrase, it's not fair, right? 
Jimmy takes the toy from me. That's not fair. The kids want what's fair. They want justice until they don't want justice for themselves, until they don't want discipline for mom and dad because of the wrong they've done. I mean, it's just God's ways in the Bible's storyline are just written all over our lives. How is it that we feel injustice and want justice done? We just don't want it done to us, not yet. Isn't the severity of the judgment in the flood actually a mark of how much God cares? How much he cares for this planet and for these people? Isn't it actually an indication of how important he thinks our role is? Far from it painting a picture of a capricious God who loses his temper every 6,000 years or something. No, this is painting for us a picture of a God who cares so much. He'd flood the earth. A God who cares so much about our role, our calling as his image bearers in this world that when we get it super wrong, he's willing to just flatten it out, ball it up, throw it away. But, but not completely, right? We'll get to that. And let me just ask this final question. What was God supposed to do under these circumstances? What was God to do given the condition of the human race in those days and given what he had already said and promised before this? He couldn't ball it up completely. He couldn't throw it away completely. He couldn't leave them alone where things were to get worse and worse and there wouldn't even be one believing family on the whole planet. What was God to do? Well, this is what he did. He destroyed all wicked humanity who had already destroyed everything anyway and he saved one family that he might begin a new humanity. So now fourthly, Noah's salvation. Noah's salvation. And here's where we got to read on. Bear with me. Verse 8 and following of Genesis 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds. Of the animals, according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind. Two of every sort you shall come in to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord God commanded him. Now, the full story of Noah and the flood and the ark occupies Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And it will occupy the next couple of Sunday sermons for us as well. So we're just getting started. We're just introduced to this this week. Notice verse 9, this famous Genesis bookmark. These are the generations of Noah. This is now the third time we've seen this phrase. These are the generations. This is now the third section of the book of Genesis. And here, just before it, was this pivotal phrase in verse 8. But Noah. It's a story about Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's where this passage turns. All these people did wickedly, and God purposed to destroy them. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Favor. What is favor? Acceptance? Yeah, but but acceptance on account of grace. Favor. Is not he likes me because I'm likable, it's he likes me and I don't know why. Favor. When someone does a favor for someone else, they do it by grace. It's the way, the way it works in English. When someone asks another person for a favor, they ask it by grace. And yes, the passage goes on, verse 9 to say that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. But before that, I think the order is important, before that, it says Noah found favor in the sight of his God. Hebrews 11 describes Noah as a man of faith. Faith. It took faith to begin constructing this massive boat when there were no visible signs of flooding and no one else who had heard the word from the Lord to start building. Hebrews 11 says that Noah was an heir according to the righteousness that comes by faith. So this is where the passage has been driving all along. Not just about humanity's corruption. Not just about God's frustration. Not even just about the coming destruction. But Noah's salvation. And the salvation of seven others. And by extension, 
this is about our salvation. Because God provided an ark, you and I are here today. Without the ark, you wouldn't live, let alone have faith and find favor like Noah did. And in light of that undeserved favor, yeah, he was relatively righteous compared to those around him. He was blameless compared to the, the generation he was in. And he walked with God. Don't you love that language? Adam and Eve walked with God. Enoch, it said, walked with God. Noah walked with God. Christians are to walk with God. The Christian life is described as a walk. Think of just what it means to walk with God. It means to be near him. It means to commune with him. It means to be going in the same direction as him. It means to be with him and for him and him to be with you and for you. That's what we need. We need to be like Noah in our faith, in finding favor with God, in walking with God, in trusting and obeying but we also need something and someone that is better than Noah and better than an ark. We need, we need the one. Remember the ending of chapter five? Lamech thought that Noah might be the one. He hoped his son would be the one to undo the curse. And so he was appropriately named Noah which means rest. He was hoping he would provide rest for the fallen world. And God used him as a human instrument to provide salvation for a family and to create a whole new humanity. So, important guy? Oh, yeah. But not the one. Not the one who overturns the curse. Not the one who totally crushes the head of the serpent. And so here we are, thousands of years after the flood, glad that God gave Noah and made him build an ark and produced a whole new humanity. But here we feel the effects of sin in this world and we feel like we still need rescue. We Restless people still feel like we need rest. And then Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew 11. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Titus 2 describes the grace of God like this, or shall we use the Old Testament term, favor, the grace or the favor of God has appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. In Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus saves, rescues, and gives rest through his cross in resurrection. 
That's these days what we put our faith in. That's these days how, how we find favor with God and begin to walk with him. Have you? Have you found rest and rescue in the one who is better than Noah and is bigger than some ark? And have you found favor with God like Noah did? Have you begun to walk with this God like Noah once did? I pray you would today if you haven't yet. And if you have, then keep striving to go God's way. And though all the world go the other way, don't go. Just don't go. You stick with God. Though none go with me was the camp song I grew up singing. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your rich and marvelous word, for these stories of old that contribute to the grand story where Christ is, well, not a glimmer of hope, but the essence of hope, the embodiment of hope, our capital H hope. We thank you for such grace. Help us, Lord, to live in light of it, to walk with you in it, and to hold out this message to the world who so desperately needs it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.